environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I'm Brandon Golm. So today's guest is Robert Geel. Robert is lecturer in film and television studies at the University of Wolverhampton in the United Kingdom. His research applies psychoanalysis and post-structuralism to fields which have tended to marginalise those approaches such as ad- adaptation studies and eco-criticism. His book, Ecological Film Theory and Psychoanalysis, Surviving the Environmental Apocalypse in Cinema, was published by Routledge in 2021. So welcome, Robert, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. Um, so today's focus, and therefore today's root word, is film. Uh, this is a very interesting word that has gone through several major transformations in its history, which I will go through in reverse order. So the latest, and yet still older than you might think sense is that of a motion picture or movie. The first recorded usage of this sense is from 1899. And the designation of a moving image as a film, of course, referred to the material basis upon which such pictures were originally recorded, either a roll of film or, before that, a thin layer of light-sensitive material applied to photographic paper, a sense which takes us back to 1840. Before this time, a film just referred to any thin layer covering the surface of a substance such as the film on surface of water and the earliest recorded usage of this sense dates from 1577. Earlier than that, film referred specifically to a thin layer of organic substance covering the surface of a plant or animal, a skin or a membrane, a sense which goes right back to Old English. In fact, in Old English, the word film also described the thin layer of skin that covers the male genitals, i.e. the foreskin. Indeed, the word comes from the same Indo-European base as the ancient Greek pella, meaning skin. It is ironic, then, that film, as a form of media that, as Robert says in his book, grants the spectator a disembodied viewing position, actually has this very bodily etymological origin. And as I'm sure we'll be hearing from Robert, this obfuscation or forgetting of the body and the bodily is part of what has caused our current crisis. Um, so let's get into it. Robert, to set the stage for your book, can you start by giving us a two to three minute elevator pitch so that listeners can get a general idea of its scope? Yes, absolutely. Uh, thanks for that introduction, which was fascinating in itself. Um, I think my book does um, uh, two main things that are inter- interrelated. The, the, the second is, if you like, a, an example of the of the first more theoretical claim. So I, I think it's perhaps worthwhile starting with the, with the second example, the more specific um, thing that that um, demonstrates my broader claim. Um, and this second thing is um, an analysis of um, recent and contemporary films that are mainstream films, in some cases, uh, in some, many cases, uh, blockbuster films that are about um, environmental disasters of one kind or another. Uh, the kind of films I'm talking out, uh, about are films like The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, Geostorm, San Andreas, Waterworld, Aronofsky's Noah, um, which are hopefully films which um, many people uh, listening will be familiar with, at least some of these examples. Um, and my claim about these films is that they express our culture's anxiety about real-world 
ecological problems uh, and uh, ecological degradation, which we are causing, um, mainly, of course, climate change. Um, and we might suppose that uh, having films that address these real-world issues could have some kind of uh, beneficial potential, um, changing the audience's um, uh, beliefs and behaviours. Uh, and some scholars have attempted to, to, to uh, find out whether that is indeed the case. Um, but my claim is that the films have uh, three main mechanisms that displace any of this um, useful potential, um, and which instead mean that they are um, ideological ways to suggest, indeed, that all is well and that we don't need to take real-world action. And these three th three things are, um, firstly, um, the films uh, depict the disaster and um, frequently something that's quite like an apocalypse as something that can be survived. So um, the spectator is aligned with protagonists who are threatened by the disaster but ultimately survive, suggesting that we too would survive a real-world example of something like this. Um, secondly, these films um, have um, uh, protagonists who not only survive, but they are somehow cleansed and improved um, through, through the ordeal. Um, and this draws very much on, on, on the, uh, a tradition going back at least as far as Noah that I, that I just mentioned there. Um, so the films, for example, they rebuild disrupted heteronormative families. They apportion guilt, which in the real world... We, we're all responsible for, they, they uh, portion that onto particular individuals who are punished. And so um, the suggestion of these films is that we not only would survive, but we would be improved and cleansed by, uh, by the disaster. Um, and thirdly, the, the violent environmental disasters not only cleanse humanity, but they cleanse the earth. Um, and a Gaia-like benevolence is achieved at the end of the, uh, the film, so that this, the disaster was temporary, suggesting that you know, the real-world equivalent of this will be temporary and that nature returns to being benevolent rather than um, dangerous. Um, and so my analysis of these films, I, I use them to um, provide examples of my, my more underlying and more theoretical point, which is that our contemporary culture is fundamentally ecophobic is fundamentally alienated from the non-human world around us um and as i'm sure we'll discuss going forwards i um i i, I um i call this the, the the cartesian separation that we have between us and everything else which is which is there for us there for our utility and our pleasure um, and i argue that film is a cartesian ritual that legitimates this alienation and expresses this alienation the images on the screen just like the world around us are there for us, and we are this um, centralized, omnipotent uh, master of all we survey in the cinema. Um, so I claim that this is the ideological effect of all mainstream um, cinema, um, and the ecological disaster films that, that, that I mentioned just a moment ago are an, an exaggerated example of this. And I should also add that I, I also do consider and have a bit of a discussion about the potential for a form of film which can perhaps interrogate or avoid this kind of alienating anthropocentric uh, gaze. Great. Uh, I think lots of really, really interesting th stuff uh, to unpack there over the course of this episode. But uh, maybe before we move too deep into some of that stuff, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, how you found yourself in this work. Where, where did this develop out of? Or Okay, thank you for that question. Um, it's, 
I, I think that that's a really useful, is always a useful question for, 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 for any piece of work. But I think for, for my piece of work, it's, it's perhaps particularly useful because I kind of came um, to this particular way of thinking somewhat by accident when I was um, writing my first book, which was based on my PhD, um, and which was about um, applying a psychoanalytic um, analysis of cinema, but, but I wasn't yet considering... Um, environmental or ecological issues. What I was trying to do was um, to, uh, I was actually studying uh, film adaptation, Shakespeare films was what I, my first book um, was about. And I was um, analyzing them in relation to um, cinema's inherent ideological effect. And, and, and there's a large body of scholarship on this that considers the way in which film has some kind of fixing effect on the spectator is in some way making the, the spectator passive, deceiving the spectator that they are actively controlling what's unfolding before them while that's, whilst actually, you know, convincing them of various um, ideological ideas. And this particular tradition in film studies is um, at best um, uh, quite an obscure one and difficult um, to, um, to penetrate. Um, and some of its critics have indeed said that it's um, deliberately obscurantist and uh, you know willfully um, um, difficult to penetrate. So when I was trying to um, set out a, a, a kind of a, a, as clear and as coherent um, an outline of, of how this method works, I um, I tried to ut utilize um, Paul Ricoeur's argument um, about um, two different traditions in modern Western thought that he that he outlines in a book called Freud and Philosophy, which. You, you perhaps may be familiar with. Uh, what Ricoeur does is he, he, he divides contemporary um, modern Western thought into two different approaches. He, one is called, he calls the school of truth, and one he calls the, the school of suspicion. And the, the school of truth for him is exemplified by Descartes. Now, I subsequently later on found out that this particular critique of, of Descartes is something that's quite central to um, uh, quite a lot of work in eco-criticism, this notion that Cartesian dualism has this um, illusory separation between the, the rational human mind and everything else in the world around us. And I wasn't yet aware of how this might be applied to ecological issues when I was first thinking through these ideas. But what we have with Descartes, then, is we, we have this, this notion that the human mind definitely exists. But you may remember, D Descartes is interested in um, how can I know what really mm -hmm. does and doesn't exist? Yeah, yeah I, I must doubt everything, yeah? Um, and, it, and, and he formulates this, perhaps the most um, famous phrase in Western philosophy, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So I know that I must exist. But everything else is subsidiary. I mean, I, I, I can... Uh, I can be reasonably sure that the world around me exists, but only in relation to the, the surety of my own rational mind. Um, and, and the opposite school, um, in, co in contrast to this for Ricoeur, is what he calls the school of suspicion, which he, he associates with a number of philosophers, but particularly with Marx and especially Freud. Um, and this is, a, this is a, a, um, an intellectual approach that thinks that it's not only the external world which is beyond our complete knowledge. But even the internal mental mechanisms that govern our consciousness are unknown to us, that something is um, making us think and act in certain ways beyond our rational control. So I had, so if you like, I was trying to utilize this distinction between these two different ways of thinking, the school of um, 
uh, truth and the school of suspicion to think, you know, to, to explain that this is the kind of ideological effect that film, uh, that film can have. Um, and when I was trying to say uh, in, in, in my first book, you know, what, what kind of effects might this have on the world around us? You know, what, what is the ideological effect of this? Because this is something that the existing scholarship hadn't been very successful at making clear. I started thinking about this separation between the human and everything else might ha- might be part of the ecological problem that we, you know, the, 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 the reason why we treat the world around us with the kind of contempt that we do. And subsequently, I, I, I read people like Lynn White Jr. and L- Lorraine Code, scholars who had, who had already made this claim about Cartesian dualism. But briefly, I was unaware of this. But I thought, that's my next project. The, it, it, you know, the film doesn't just have some general ideological effect. Film, in terms of suggesting that we are the Cartesian masters of all we survey, has a particularly ecological ecologically damaging effect and i thought that that will be my next project and and that's subsequently what i began to work on and then um turned into Mm. this book um thinking a little bit more about this specific focus on on film when you were kind of um giving the initial summary of your book i was thinking that like those those things that you name so the fact that the spectator is like aligned with a main character who survives and that who's somehow cleansed and improved by the experience and that it's a temporary disaster i think th- this could also be true of you know some like written fiction that you know you kind of you you're an outside observer privy to the this this world and so perhaps there's some things there in your argument that that could be applied to other forms of media but i'm wondering what what you really see as the the difference between film and these other forms of media what is it specifically about the the moving image that that um creates this uh cartesian dualistic effect and also in in terms of how how film actually mediates the relationship between the human and the non-human world what what is it about film that is that is different there um than other forms of art or media mm. well i think you're absolutely right to say that that for example a novel can do the same kind of um or, or can have some of the same kind of effects in terms of um being linked to protagonists resolving um the problems that it sets up um and and it, it does something, in fact, that film borrowed from novels, um, which in film we call cross-cutting, you know, the, the movement around a fictional world, which, which grants us the ability to sort of transcend time and space. Um, so um, it's not only film that can do that, but, but what films does m- more so th- than, um, than prose, what film is particularly, or, or what makes film, I think, particularly Cartesian, is the the ocular centric approach, the fact that vision is such a, a, um, a fetishized component of the way in which the Cartesian mastery that film seems to grant us separates us out from the, um, the fictional, um, or the non-human world around us. So we have, so, so if we have this distinction then between the, the human and, um, something that's external to the human, having that in, in, in visual terms seems to exaggerate this notion. I, mean, I think if I, if I make a comparison with a, with a, a, a different art form, this will perhaps, um, make my point. So painting, for example, 
scholars who who have um, uh, been interested in um, thinking about the way in which um, modern subjectivity is Cartesian, has this separation between the human and everything else. Think of three the, the, the three dimensional illusion of perspectival painting that, that began in the Renaissance. So in the Renaissance. For the first time, there's a form of um, painting that creates the illusion of three-dimensional space. This form of painting, I think, demonstrates the way in which uh, viewing is such an inherently Cartesian premise. So you have this three-dimensional tableau arranged before you in a Renaissance painting. And one of the key points about this is that the, the whole world that's depicted there seems to unfold purely for the centralized point of the spectator. So the spectator is positioned in this ideal space to see everything perfectly arranged and unfolding before him or her, which is a very modern way of thinking about the relationship between the human and the non-human that, that Descartes puts into words when he's, when he's talking about, you know, the distinction between the res cogitans thinking being in the res extensa world around it. It literally extends out from us. And when, when you're looking at a Renaissance painting, the same kind of thing's happening there. There's this fictional world that extends out, and we we are the, the centralised point and master of all we survey. Um, and cinema takes that logic and enhances it even further, because not only is it um, a static tableau, but we can move around from one image to another, um, we can, you know, see the volcano erupt in um, scene A and then move to scene B where there are people who don't see the volcano is coming towards them. And, and we have this mastery. We, we have this perceptual mastery that they didn't have. So it's not just, as you say, a novel can, can tell you that the threat is coming and then move to the sequence where the threat emerges. But cinema has this very, um, this very Cartesian way of showing us and the, indeed, the films fetishize vision. The, the, the way in which characters, we just mentioned the protagonists who survive, these protagonists who survive are, are, are shown um, seeing the way that they're going to survive. It's on a computer screen, or they um, have um, a point of view shot of um, the fact that they have seen the disaster unfolding in a previous um, um, a, a version. So their, their, their perception is really central just as the spectator's perception is really central, that it's the thing that allows both the characters and vicariously the spectator to be able to see what is about to come and to, um, therefore, to survive, suggesting to us that, you know, we'll see this disaster that's about to unfold. You know, the real-world disaster, we'll, you would see it. You would be able to prepare. You will be one of those ones who, who, who sees it coming and survive. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna be be the one trick pony that I am. But it, as you're talking through there, it, it also makes me wonder or curious. And, and I'm not expecting an answer here. This is more of a comment. But um, how some of this stuff would play out in something like a video game, which is also a very visual media, but you are you are actually controlling in some ways that narrative as it unfolds, um, rather than just being a passive spectator. So I think there'd be an interesting um, interesting. Uh, way to kind of mm. but like in a game as well it's going to be a survivable narrative right it it it, it that's right, going to be absolutely. written in in the same way that it is in film yeah. that, that there can be this like satisfying ending Good. yeah yeah i mean I, you also have i think in in, in computer and this is something that that has bled over into cinema to an extent as well the notion of some some examples of contemporary cinema the notion that in a computer game you 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 save your progress before you get to the really dangerous yeah. 
part, don't you? So even if the disaster happens, you can uh, you can come yeah. back and try again. Um, and there have been some um, recent examples of films that um, pick up on this notion. I'm just trying to think of the example of the. Um, well, there's uh, yeah, there. Um, it's not. I mean, it's not environmental, but there's there's that movie Source Code that came out several indeed, years ago yeah. where like Jake Gyllenhaal's on a train and he has to figure out like who's Absolutely, who's yeah. bombing this train, but like he gets to like redo it each time he um, yeah. Um, you know, each time he fails, he learns new information and then he kind of is able to proceed until at the end there's, you know, kind of the quote unquote, uh, uh, protagonist surviving and, and happy. So. Absolutely. And there's the Tom Cruise film as well from a similar era, isn't there as well, where he's, I forget the name of the film. Edge of, is Edge of Tomorrow? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. That, sound, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Where he keeps repeating strangely like a kind of a D-Day invasion yeah. against aliens yeah and again so i think that that's an example of how that kind of um yeah. gamification we might say has bled in but it, I, I, again they can have that similar kind of ideological effect we have a you know in the game you have a mastery don't you you might be in world war ii soldier in like right. a call of duty game but as, as Gemma says you can su- survive it and you you yeah. you will survive it by by repeatedly saving yeah uh, um anyways so i i think um Maybe now uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about this this idea of ecophobic and and just kind of exploring that term a little bit more and um, maybe like an example or two of how it actually plays out in a specific film. Okay, yeah. So so ecophobic then. I mean, the, the, the underlying theoretical claim, and we, we we've made some of these points, but perhaps worth worth pulling out is that th- this this Cartesian separation. And, 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 and I'm I'm certainly not the first person to say that Cartesian culture. Is is ecophobic because of, of this separation that we have between the human and the non-human, which suggests that the world that extends out from us is there for us. So instead of it being a forest that's full of agency, it's a load of wood that's waiting to be cut down and turned into something for for our use. As I say, I'm not the first to make that claim. I think one of the things that I try to to emphasize about this. Uh, utilizing the the, the, the the psychoanalytic method that that is important for, for me is the idea that um, this Cartesian way of thinking isn't just one different way that we might choose to think about the world or that it's only something that people who are thinking in a very scientific way about you know solving a specific problem might might employ but that it's part of our unconscious it's part of our very identity as as individuals when we speak the i i'm going to do whatever i am going to do that i is a kind of an inherently cartesian subject a, a, an illusion a, a, a fiction which has all these kind of alienating effects from uh, from the world around us and that because it's unconscious it's not something that we can just will away it's something that that needs to have radical transformative um action in order for us to try and transcend this and so my argument in terms of moving on to the point that you make about a specific example, my argument is that that our culture through things like cinema reinforces to us this this notion. And so, as I said, at the most basic level, it's in any form of dominant mainstream cinema or television. I mean, the, the, the most basic unit of this is in the is in the shot reverse shot structure, which for, for those people who aren't film scholars is, you know, when you have two characters in conversation, even in a soap opera, this doesn't have to be a big budget spectacle. Two characters in conversation, when one of them is speaking, 
the camera shows them speaking. They finish and the other one replies and the camera cuts, doesn't it, to the opposite position. It goes into the reverse shot. And my argument is that even this, that basic movement there is, is privileging our Cartesian centrality. We're seeing the world unfold for us. We've suddenly transcended space. We can, we can shift and reappear suddenly in a new place so that everything is arranged in a way that allows us to have this sense of mastery over it, even though, of course, potentially we're being manipulated by what's happening in this shot-reverse-shot structure. It might be trying to convince us of, of various ideological messages, not least, of course, this, this, this uh, alienation. Um, but in the kind of films that I'm talking about, the, these ecological disaster films, we, we not only have those kind of um, bare basic units of, of things like shot reverse shot but we have a whole na- whole um, narrative and um, series of uh, images and spectacles which again suggest that we have this separation from the um, natural world around us and that um, we can transcend the dangers so did you say you would like me to talk you through briefly through a kind of an example yeah i think just one. you know give us like one example of a movie and and okay. show us yeah. how this analysis would work Okay, so one, I, I talk about a number of films in detail, but perhaps the one that I talk about most, is, which is perhaps the clearest example of, the, uh, of these kind of premises, is the, uh, the Roland Emmerich film 2012, which uh, some people um, hopefully listening to this will, will know or, or perhaps know of. Um, it was released in 2009, so just a few years before 2012. And the, the reason it's called 2012 is it's referring to, I don't know whether people remember, perhaps you sort of have to slightly show your age to be able to remember this. But leading up to 2012, there was a little bit of real-world anxiety about how apparently the Mayan calendar mm. en- ended in 2012, although that was a, a misunderstanding of how the Mayan calendar <laughs> system worked, essentially. But nevertheless, there was a little bit of anxiety about you know, the end of the world is coming. And, of course, this is connected with, our anxiety about global warming, mm-hmm. ecological disaster, because of course the, the 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 end of the world that that happens in the film, although the world doesn't quite end, of course, it ha, ha, is fundamentally a kind of ecological disaster: um, uh, volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis—the kind of things that we have this real-world anxiety about. So, the film begins, and, and right from the start, it, it 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 privileges the spectator's knowledge of what's going to happen. So. It begins with um, a solar flare. We, we see an image of, of, uh, of the sun, and there are these solar flares. Subsequently, it's going to be these solar flares that cause the damage. But we see right from the start the cause of this, and we see like the solar flare traveling towards the Earth. And then down on the Earth, we see some scientists meeting up, and they're going to explain that they have seen this disaster coming. So right from the start, we are aligned with the very, the, the, you know, the 0.0000001% of the population who know that the disaster is coming. And again, it suggests to the spectator, if this were to happen in the real world, you'll, you'll know about it. And it even has these tiny little details. So in, the, in this first sequence, um, one of the scientists is traveling in a taxi to go and visit the other. Uh, and the taxi um, splashes into a puddle where a little boy is playing with a boat in the puddle. And it knocks the boat onto its side and this is foreshadowing what will later happen to a real world larger boat that happens later in the narrative so we're seeing these things that will come from later on even with those little details so um following this we're then introduced to characters who didn't who aren't scientists and who did, you know that every every man and the, our every man in this film is um is probably the main protagonist of the film is called jackson played by john cusack um, and he, so he, of course, doesn't have this information. And to begin with, the introduction to the character, 
we have um, the film uh, takes pains to to demonstrate that we have more information than than he does. There's a, a dramatic irony about his lack of information and our information. So he's asleep on a sofa, and there's a news report on the television that that, that the spectator sees of um, the solar flares are coming, and that there's going to be a big solar flare happening that night he of course has missed this and then there's a minor earthquake and he wakes up and he repeats three four times i'm dead i'm dead i'm dead referring to it'll subsequently be seen in a moment that he's late to go and pick up his children but the, the, there's a dramatic irony there we know that i'm dead is referring to the end of the world is coming yeah the spectator has been given this information that he doesn't have and then he slowly gets to receive little bits of information that allows him to catch up with the information that we have just in time for him to save his family in a series of escapes. It's important, as I'll come to in a moment as well, that his family is disrupted as well. So he's been divorced from his wife. He has two young children and there's a stepfather figure who's kind of usurped his role. Um, and during these series of disasters that take up most of the running time of this film, the spectator is given this position that transcends the danger. The disasters are depicted as a threat to the characters. The first of these are a massive series of earthquakes that send all of California down into the, uh, into the ocean. But that, and this is one of the key points for me, they are a pleasurable experience for the spectator. They get, they, first of all, they travel in a car just about avoiding all these falling buildings. Then they get into an aeroplane and they pirouette and... Um, glide around collapsing skyscrapers etc and and of course the characters are, are frightened by what's happening to them but for the spectator it's a pleasurable experience people pay their money to go and have this transcendence over the danger we keep being given these positions of mastery of joyful mastery whirling around and above the devastation there are these ant-like figures being destroyed you know this is a terrible thing but it's, it's pleasurable. The, the protagonist will survive, the spectator will survive, but the spectator will have this pleasurable um, mastery over the disaster. And then we have the, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the punishment assigned to particular characters. So I mentioned that in the real world, of course, all of our behavior in contemporary capitalism is something that's causing the real world problems around us. But the film can apportion that blame onto, onto certain characters. So you have... Um, a, a Russian billionaire oligarch who is Jackson's boss, who's um, guilty of overconsumption. He has loads of sports cars on board a massive aeroplane, which they use to escape. Um, and he will be killed and uh, punished by death for the fact that he is the person who takes this blame from us. And the family that I mentioned that had been disrupted will be rebuilt at the end. The stepfather will be assigned as being guilty and he will be punished by death as well. Uh, as will various other characters who are guilty of various other misdemeanors, not all necessarily completely associated with um, uh, environmental issues. Um, and Jackson and his family finally do escape onto there are three arcs that um, are used to survive the disaster because the whole world is covered in massive tsunamis and the, essentially the whole population of the earth is wiped out. But there are three large boats that they call arcs, and obviously a clear reference to Noah, um, which uh, a small number of humans survive aboard. And Jackson and his family manage to get on onto one of these boats. Um, and it ends with the, the reunited heteronormative family. Um, so, so the characters have not only survived, but they've rebuilt these kind of broken 
um, relationships. Um, and the camera pulls away finally, um, as many of these films do, by pulling upwards away from the Earth to show this image of the Earth from space that's now benevolent and guile-like and isn't, is no longer um, threatening and violent, but is, is restored to its um, benevolence. And again, my, my claim, just to, to, to repeat my claims about all of this, then my, my claims are that these films suggest that we, like the protagonist, will um, uh, uh, survive, that we will be improved um, and our relationships restored in the process, um, and that it's the fact that the characters can see the danger coming, which is the thing that's fetishized. And, of course, the spectator sees the danger coming and enjoys the, 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 the disaster that comes. So it's this kind of fetishization of the way in which cinema allows us to have this illusion that we can see danger coming which is the key ideological um, message for me of these films mm. and so it's, it's a little bit like um you know we we might kind of think oh great hollywood is sort of making climate change films now you know maybe that's uh, growing awareness but what you're saying is actually they are just reinforcing the same kind of narrative in which in which we can kind of keep these problems at bay and and not really engage with them um i'm wondering whether you know you're you're saying that the kind of the film always places the spectator in this in this kind of transcendent position away from the danger are there any films that that don't do that is it possible to 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 make films that that don't kind of enact this ecophobic dualism that you're talking about well, I think that it is absolutely possible for film to to do that, but there's a there's a very important distinction, which is that um, films of the of the of the type that we're talking about can't do that. I don't think so. I don't think that a blockbuster disaster film could make some small little tweaks around the edges, um, and uh, which would allow us to not have this kind of transcendent illusion of of mastery so the the kind of films that um potentially allow us to um to, to see in a different way and, and perhaps to think in a different way are a, a very different category of film altogether and essentially we're talking here about although i also i also discuss how a certain tradition japanese film that we can maybe come to in a moment maybe go some way towards this but but the predominant form of film that allows us to see and perhaps think in different ways is is a kind of an an avant-garde really um that in the in the uh, eco studies literature tends to be called um uh, eco cinema or eco films they tend to be much shorter films they tend to not be narrative films or not narrative films in the traditional hollywood sense they they often use a, a term that some scholars um, try to identify in these films is something called, a, which they call a zoomorphic gaze, attempting to kind of show a, a, an animal-like um, vision rather than this uh, illusory um, Cartesian vision, which I, which I, you know, argue is fundamentally um, anthropocentric. So, uh, uh, some kind of animal-like vision, um, but this, it's fundamental, isn't something that, that happens in. Um, mainstream Hollywood. There are some scholars who think that certain mainstream Hollywood films can potentially help us to have some some um, beneficial changed attitudes towards the environment. So if you think of a film, for example, like um, Avatar, I think is perhaps 
as clear an example you get of this that's a that's a very well-known film that spends a lot of its running time evoking the beauty of of a natural world i mean it's slightly odd that it's a it's a non it's not earth that has this um natural beauty but um the film is an example of um how hollywood can have narratives that are about defending uh, natural beauty against the despoilers of of natural beauty and that that um, ostensibly might have some kind of beneficial potential i think the problem of a film like that is that it has um, partly it has the you know the shot re- reverse shot structure that i mentioned earlier on you know it keeps moving the spectator around in a way that suggests that we have a mastery over the um the fictional world but also a film like that undercuts its um its radical potential in terms of you know the film I, I don't know if, if either of you know the film. You, you, you may well do. You know, the film begins with um, there's, a, there's a, a moon, Pandora, which is this beautiful um, place full of um, uh, um, a, a particular natural resource that humans want to come and take. And the, and the, 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 um, the human characters who are going to take this are, uh, are depicted as imperialist, colonialist despoilers of, of, of this verdant paradise. And that, of course, might have a potential use value. But what happens at the end of the film is that the, the political dimension of this drops out and it becomes um, an individual conflict between two main characters, one protagonist and one antagonist. And the antagonist now is kind of purely evil as opposed to motivated by capitalism, imperialism, etc. So the films, Hollywood films always have this tendency to undercut any kind of... Um, uh, radical potential and the films that i'm interested in that i've been talking about earlier do this even more so so the, the kind of avant-garde then that i'm talking about that that um potentially um allows us to to escape from this kind of anthropocentric gaze doesn't operate um in hollywood or operates very much at the margins of of hollywood i mean do you want me to give you an example of this kind of film sure I yeah tell us got one yeah Okay, so I, I, well, I, I, I discuss a number in, in the book, but I think the one that's perhaps the most well-known, although, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe make this point in a moment in more detail, the fact that these films aren't very well-known are, are a large part of the problem. Yeah? These are films that aren't seen by very large numbers of people, and, and they tend to be seen by people who are already on board with kind of ecological activism. So that really undercuts some of the... Um, you know the potential use value, but perhaps the most well-known of these films that I discuss is is a film called Grizzly Man, mm. which you may may have heard of, um, directed by Werner Herzog. So I'll just give you a brief description for those for, for if there's anybody listening who doesn't know the film. The film is about someone called Timothy Treadwell who um, lived in the wild with some wild bears, and he filled himself living with those wild bears, um, and then he was eventually killed by those same bears. Uh, and in, in fact, um, the footage of him being killed by the bears was captured um, on camera. Um, and then the rest of the film is, so it's partly the footage of, uh, that Treadwell took of, of him and the bears, is Werner Herzog, the, the, the director, piecing together this material and, and making it that into the final film. So what makes this potentially um, different from this Cartesian um, way of um, spectatorship that I've been discussing is that some of the shots potentially have this zoomorphic quality, a kind of an animal-like view. So they're positioned in and amongst the bears, and they arguably, for some of the scholars perhaps more so than me, they potentially um, allow the spectator to experience something like a 
becoming bareness, you know, a kind of a bear's eye view, uh, which potentially can, you know, uh, therefore challenge our, our Cartesian anthropocentric, anthropocentric um, gaze. I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps not quite as optimistic about that particular component as some other scholars. For me, what's most important about a film like this is the way that the film foregrounds that it's artifice rather than fiction. So it doesn't, it doesn't have this illusion of suggesting that um, these events are um, something that you, uh, as a spectator, become invested in as though they were really happening, that you can have this kind of transcendence over um, space and that you might experience something um, uh, yourself in the real world. Rather than doing that, they, they disrupt the kind of mastery that we have. So I, I, I mentioned just a moment ago that the, um, uh, the footage of Treadwell being, being killed was captured on camera. It's important, I think, in the film that that key moment isn't shown in the film. Instead, what happens is um, Herzog watches the footage and the camera shows Herzog watching the footage rather than the footage itself. And that's an example of the way in which, you know, this, this, the, the artifice, the fact that this is just a document and not trying to pass itself off as something that the spectator can become invested in and can have this transcendence over is potentially happening here. I mean, another film that, that, that does this, that is much less well-known, but I think perhaps makes makes this clearer, is a film called Sleep Furiously by um, Gideon Koppel. It's, it's, it's set on a farm. So it's kind of documentary footage of things happening on a farm. But there's, there's one scene in particular in which there's a, a camera shows a, no, a number of sheep in a very, very long shot. So they're small figures moving around a field. And it just holds on these sheep for several minutes. And they move in one direction and they slightly move in another direction, etc. That's the kind of thing that's, that's, for me, the most extremely different kind of gaze that this kind of film can offer. It doesn't allow us to move around the space. It doesn't have a human um, force that's directing what's happening. There's a kind of animal agency. They might move in this direction. They might move in the other direction. It has this slow quality that potentially doesn't provide us with this sense that we are uh, you know, mastering and moving around the space in the, in the same kind of way as the Hollywood tradition. Now, as I said, part of the problem of this is that this kind of filmmaking isn't seen by very many people at all uh, and therefore isn't necessarily going to have the potential to challenge enough people to think that, you know, that, that, that their subjectivity could, could, could be something different, that their experience of seeing could be something different. So that's one of the se very serious limitations of this potentially alternative um, style of filmmaking but uh, nevertheless of course it's important that we people continue to make this kind of film and that we continue to um, explore its potential to show us different ways of seeing and thinking because that ultimately I think is what we really need and what our Hollywood films aren't allowing us to do awesome thank you so much well, this has been really fascinating uh, but it is time to end on a roll so uh, I've got my 12 sided okay. die here I'm going to give it a right. toss and uh, whatever comes up that's what we're going to ask you uh, oh, this is a good one. Uh, so it's number eight. Uh, do you have an environmental author or artist or theorist that you would recommend to somebody right now? Someone you're you're kind of finding some interest in. It could be somebody new, somebody old. Well, I, I suppose that's that's maybe it. there. Obviously, there are lots of various different things, but I think that's an opportunity for me to to um, to fill in a little bit of of something that I mentioned before and didn't have a chance to to, to talk about. And I, I mentioned how I discussed Japanese film. I think perhaps. 
Miyazaki's anime films, which which again you may be familiar with, are perhaps a, a nice example of f- films that have some kind of eco critical potential, even though they don't go as far perhaps as the avant garde. So I would mm-hmm. say that, and again, a number of other scholars have made this point that a certain kind of Japanese aesthetic that's perhaps most exemplified in Miyazaki films like um, Spirited Away, um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, can perhaps help the spectator to experience some kind of connection with um, the natural world that, that that isn't fully Cartesian. And I, I think what, why I would recommend those as well is that they have a perhaps a larger audience well they certainly have a larger audience than avant-garde films Mm -hmm. i think particularly as well young young spectators can really get into um anime it's something that can potentially be used to in a kind of a didactic way if you like to um to get young people to think in 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 um kind of ecologically um benevolent uh way so yeah miyazaki would be my, my my one for that awesome great well thank you so much um and how can listeners find out more about you and your work do you have a website or social media or anything you'd like to give us yeah probably the usual places i am on twitter um i don't think there is another robert Geel on twitter i've, I've got a sufficiently uh, unusual uh, name to be the only one there um and i also have um a page on academia.edu edu um which has got like links to uh, you know where my publications are etc so those two places Great. Awesome. Well, that stuff will be in the show notes as always. Uh, so yeah, thanks again for joining us. This has been, been really, really great and enlightening. And uh, thank you all for listening. If you've got an idea for an episode, whether you want to propose something for yourself or you'd like for us to reach out and have somebody on the show, uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter at uh, Asley underscore Ecocast. We have a link tree on there that has uh, some information on where you can find us and to submit uh, proposal ideas. You can also reach out to us through our Gmail, uh, asley.ecocast at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening to Ecocast, you can help us reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye. Thank you.